Hello. Welcome, Southbridge. Glad that you're here. I hope you're glad you're here. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for um, inhabiting the praise of your people. Thank you for this church. and Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have of gathering. And Lord, uh, we ask for your forgiveness in whatever ways we um, make church or do church in uh, a way that's less than what you desire. And Lord, we, help, we ask that you'd help us be what you desire us to be, that we'd be church well. Thank you for your word, Lord, that you've not left us here alone to guess what it means to know you. And God, we ask that you would teach us and speak to us. Lord, I ask that you give me the strength to, to preach again and um, that your spirit would flow through and uh, that your spirit would do the work that only you can do. That's life change. I pray, God, for each person that's here, Lord, as we encounter you, your word, Lord, that each heart would be open and receptive, mine included, and God, that we would learn. And as we look into a mirror, that we'd see what needs to be adjusted and that we, by the power of your spirit, permit you to adjust what needs to be changed. And God, we just pray these things expectantly, knowing that you love to come through. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what a great time already. An extended time of worship. And this morning, you've seen when you came in that there's tables out front, which is an evidence that we're doing something special today, and it's one of our e-group expos. E-groups is what we call small groups. There's different kinds. You can read about them in your bulletin. Your bulletin's been put together weekly by our communications director, Carrie Evans, and she works really hard so that you'd have something to know what's going on. For those of you that aren't website inclined, it is 2015, but that's for you. And so please take time to look at it, and within that, those pages, you can find out what our groups are about and what kind we have, and so we're going to give time, and I'm going to speak a little shorter today if I can. Uh, to uh, give you time to look at those groups before we leave today. And even if you're already in a group, or you think groups aren't for me, I'm anti-group, meaning I'm anti-people. Hopefully you'll change, but also you just hang out with people afterwards, okay? So you don't have to rush and grab your babies right away, and we'll have time. This morning we're continuing our series called Making the Most Of. Two weeks ago we began it, and Pastor Scott led us so well in considering making the most of our time. Last week we considered looking at making the most of our gifts, our talents, our abilities for the glory of God and for the betterment of one another. And this morning Scott's asked me to preach about, teach about making the most of relationships. And I turn it into a question in a bit. How can we make the most of relationships? It's actually a simple question and it should have quite a simple answer. And we face things like this throughout our lives. A simple question should have a simple answer. And I think this morning's text gives us a simple answer. The problem is the application. I had an experience this week with a simple question and answer and application. That's I had the privilege of going to an orthopedist for my first time. I am 37, so you think I wouldn't have to go, but here I am and I, had a, I have a hip problem. How I hurt my hip is this. In September, I lifted something. That's it. So I'd lay low for a bit, then try to do some more working or whatever, and it hurt so bad. And so I went to physical therapy, and uh, then I went to an orthopedist. This guy is an incredible guy. Um, and he asked me about my pain. I tried my best to talk about it. And he talked about what a potential plan would be. And he said, you know, one of these things that we can try is, he's just trying to diagnose what it was, but we can do a cortisone or cortisol, I don't remember, shot into the hip to see how it reacts, and you should feel the pain subside immediately. And when he, I'm already, um, I'm pro-doctor for other people, but I'm kind of anti-doctor for me. Except for if he just wants to do a surgery, which is great because it's free sleep. I love surgery. I know that makes me weird. Free sleep in my context, in my life, in light of my home life, is it's awesome. But I'm anti-shot. So when he says we can give a shot into your hip, um, it's, since I was a child, I've hated it. I think I just hate things coming through my body. Yeah. And uh, so he said, we'll do it. And I thought maybe he was talking about a plan for later. And he said, no, we'll do it right now. So my hands are cold sweat. And... Uh, 
So he said, lean over to your side and, it said, and he brought this needle in and some helper had to carry the needle in. It was that, that's how big it was. <laughs> and you could see into it and it was an elephant tranquilizer, I'm sure. If it was a foot, it was 10. I'm, yeah. And uh, so he put that needle into my hip <laughs> and I thought he was pinning me to the table. <laughs> Threw both hips into the table. And he said, you should feel the alleviation of pain immediately stand up. And then how does it feel? And the question's so simple. Do you feel better? How do you feel? The answer should be equally as similar and easy to answer. And I couldn't differentiate in my mind, is the pain gone that I walked in here with? Or am I only feeling the harpoon he put in my leg? <laughs> the, the pool cue that he stuck through me, I could feel the reverberations of it. And it hurt all day. And I said, I don't... I, and because I'm so confident I want him to feel good about what he does, I said, probably yes, you know. Oh, I couldn't walk for the day. So pray about my old hips. That sounds awkward in church, doesn't it? Simple questions, simple answers. The same for us today. When we look in God's Word, we have simple questions for the Scriptures, and they're simple answers, but the problem actually is the application of such simple answers. The question that we're facing today, then, is this. How can I make the most of relationships? And the answer is simple it's almost so simple that I was uh, struggled with, with God picking the text for today. And Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want us to think about and consider as we consider making the most relationships? And I felt compelled that this is the answer. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. The message is simple. It's going to be a short message if I can hammer through it. But the application is going to be the biggest challenge that you'll ever face. The biggest challenge you'll ever face in your Christian life. And I'm sure some of you are facing it right now. As we talk about making the most of relationships, the Bible talks a lot about relationships, about our parents, about our spouse, about our children, about our friends, about our neighbors, about our acquaintances, about strangers, and about enemies. And the answer to the question, how am I supposed to engage? How can I make the most of all those relationships, all those kind of contexts? The answer is the same for all of them. And Jesus gives us the answer, and Jesus is the answer. And so when we look at John chapter 13, the greater context is John is writing this letter, a disciple of Jesus, and his mission for the letter is that people who read it might believe. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Same for First John. He wrote these things so those who would hear them would believe and have assurance of their faith. In John chapter 13, we see that Christ is with his disciples. They're about to celebrate the Passover feast. They have. Um, in the beginning of the chapter, we see that Jesus, in this time, moments before his betrayal, spends time washing the disciples' feet. The creator of the universe washes the disciples' feet. And a great observation by commentators, preachers, Bible study folks is that he even washed Judas' feet, you know. And then we fast forward, and after he goes through this, and he goes through this, this meal, there's this teaching. And he tells them that where he's about to go, he can't, they can't go with him. And this is after he predicts his betrayal by Judas, predicts um, Peter's denial, is one of his dearest buddies, denying that he even knows Jesus. And Peter says, that'll never happen. I speak like that sometimes. That'll never happen. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go to a place where you guys can't go. And then he gives this teaching, which is also then the answer, I believe, to the question, how can we make the most of the relationships around us? Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The question, what is the easiest way, best way, most important way? How can I make the most of relationships? The answer, love one another. Let's pray. That's it. That's probably be the best sermon you ever heard, huh? There's more. 
The answer is to love one another. And this is, sounds ridiculous in church world, especially if you're skeptic or you're kind of like anti-church, but you're here to make someone else happy or whatever. You're just checking it out for yourself. Love, love, love. Christians talk about love. And you want to know, you want to see where that is. That's a great wonder. Love one another is the command. Think of all the commands that Jesus could have given. What would you have said to your dearest and best if you know that you're about to leave them and go die for them? What would you say? Think of all the commands that we come up with church that we think is important. Why didn't Jesus just say, a new command I give you, when you do church, make sure you wear the right clothes. Think about all that he could have said, and this is what he says. He gives them something new. All the teaching and all the hours they spent with him already, all the things they've seen, and Jesus is saying, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Love is a choice to yield to another's best interest. The Greek tense of this command relates it this way. Keep on loving one another as I have loved you. And it carries with it this idea and understanding that um, you don't give up on each other. And one of the things that many people struggle with is commands because we have authority issues. So we think about God's word, we think about commands, we think that God is anti-fun or anti-us. But the truth is that God's commands are for our benefit and for his glory. So when we jump into them and we abide by them, we show him that we love him through our obedience by faith. It's for our good and for others' good and for his glory. The command is a new one. Love one another as I have loved you, as Christ has loved us. So let's ask ourselves the question, you think about you, how are you doing? Don't think about others. If they're doing a good job and the person that's hurt you the most lately, how are you doing? One of the, the answers simple because the question's simple, but for some of us, the answer is confusing, just as worship pastor Jad taught us earlier that we kind of get confused about love, and especially in our time and culture. Love in our time has not come to mean a choice to yield to another's best interest, as Jesus demonstrated that toward us. Love has come to mean, I like what you do for me. So I say this, um, for me, one of the things I love, I mean, I love it when Randy plays the bass. You might not even hear what he's doing, but you see his fingers and all the sounds coming out, and it like tingles my ears. I try to play bass. Playing bass is a bad phrasing compared to what Randy does for me. But I can say, I love when Randy plays bass, and I love my wife. I just use the same word to my, I love my wife, and I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. Turkey Hill especially. I love this band. I love this song. I love this church. I love this vacation that we're on. We use this word, and then Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. We're, we struggle in our world, in our time and culture. Most people mean, I like what you do for me. So if I find someone that does it better, or someone that does it different, or if you stop doing it, I'm out. So this love is conditional. We also get confused with love when we think about, we think love sometimes in our hearts and our souls, we get confused with like codependency or appeasing, flattery, tolerance for its own sake, we think is love. Manipulation as love. Enabling. And I'll give you a definition of enabling so you can think through it and think about your life. Enabling is this. It's keeping a capable person from experiencing the negative consequences of their neglected behavior. But they're my family, some say. That's not love. The love Jesus is talking about is bigger and better than that. It's willing to do whatever is necessary so that what is the ultimate best for the other is possible. That's what Jesus does. And we'll come back to this, what it looks like a little bit later. Let's ask the question as good Bible students ought to do. Why is this a new command? Look at the verse again. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. The reason why the command is new and why it's considered new is because of what Jesus attaches 
to the statement. He says, love one another, what's the attachment? As I have loved you. Now the Old Testament law says this, love one another as you love yourself. Even today in our culture, it's kind of the golden rule idea, like treat others as you want to be treated. But this is different and better. The statement is, love one another as I have loved you. That means that the kind of love that is commanded here isn't, give, isn't given based on, and listen and maybe write this down, it's not given based on the merits of the receiver. If they've been a good boy or good girl or they please you, so then you love. And it's not given because of the benefits of the giver. When we love another as Christ loves us, we do it for the sake of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, uh, really a theologian and preacher in a sense, uh, German, lived during the time of World War II and struggled mightily for the kingdom of God, um, experienced much harm and even his death as a result of his outspoken nature for the gospel. He writes a book in, called Life Together, which is a book that everyone should own when considering um, community, biblical community within your church, which is authentic relationships that are guided by biblical truth and grounded in spiritual accountability. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the differences between the love that this world has to offer and many of us give in Christ's love. He says, human love is directed to the other person for his own sake. But spiritual love, or you could say then Christ's love, loves another for Christ's sake. How's it going? So I have a confession to make. I know that I love people like this. I, it's embarrassing to preach to you and be an elder of this church and talking about God's love when I barely grasp God's love for myself. So I'm works-based. If I'm a good boy, then God loves me. If I'm a naughty boy, then God doesn't. That's anti-Bible, just so you know. But that's how our world works. If you, get, if you do good grades, you get rewarded. If you work hard, you get rewarded. But Christ is different. He died for naughty people. <laughs> and guess who goes to heaven? Naughty people. Not perfect people. People that are made perfect because Christ was perfect. They've placed their faith and perfection on Christ who was perfect. They take that as their own, as a gift from God. So that whoever will believe it doesn't have to be separated from God forever, but have eternal life with the presence of God. Amazing. Amen? So I know that I've loved this way. I felt this way with friendships before, even in church. God has provided family-like friends for me through Southbridge. And sometimes what happens is you keep track of who's given more. Why don't they call you when, when you call them? Why don't they want to hang, you'll hang out with them at 2 a.m. Why don't they want to hang out? And what happens is that's keeping a record. The scriptures talk about not keeping a record of wrongs, but sometimes we keep a record of rights to see how good we are doing in our friendships. Guess what? You're losing. That's not love. That's a contract. If, then... Jesus' love is different and better than that. I want to love others for Christ's sake. I want to love the people of Southbridge for Christ's sake. I want to love my community for Christ's sake. Southbridge has room to grow. There's a lot of loving things about Southbridge. We have room to grow. I want my life and how I love to spur the recipient of my love to see and experience Jesus. So when I hang out with a friend, I want to ask, how can I be a better friend to you so that you would know Christ better? This love is based on the person and mission of Christ. So not only is it true then according to 1 John that I love God because he first loved me, the Bible says, but then it would also mean, it should also mean, it also should be true that I love you because he loved me. Even more, I love you for him. Different, isn't it? Very different than saying, I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. And very different than some of our, I love what that person can do for me. How did Jesus love? A lot of talking about love. The question again is, 
How can we make the most of relationships? The answer is to love one another as Christ. The question we should ask and follow up is, how did Jesus love or how is it possible for me to love like him? And we see examples of his love toward others throughout the Gospels. Providing, caring, forgiving, telling the truth, confronting, admonishing, exhorting, listening. Jesus speaks about this love in John chapter 15. It's just a page over and it's still the same message. It's still the same talk he's having with his, with his team, with his fellows here. In John chapter 15 verses 9 through 13, I'll read for us. He says to them concerning this love, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's to your benefit. My command is this, a repeat. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus reveals God the Father's love. In fact, the Father's love for us was made evident through the giving of his son. And I would never give Noah for you. I would never give my Ethan for you. I would never give my I would never give my Titus for you, but I love my church. For God so loved you. That God so loved the world of people that hate him. We were his enemies without hope and without God. And this love moved him. He chose to yield to our best interest, to make a bridge to him, and satisfy his justice and his love when he presented Christ, his son. And Christ experienced, as we sang about earlier, hopefully you caught it, that there was this turning away. The father turns his face away. He can't look on the sin that's upon Christ because the father is holy. And Christ experiences the pain of love. Amazingly, he states that his love, love lays down one's life for another. Isn't it so cool that that's exactly what Jesus was about to do? That God doesn't just tell you to do something that he himself wasn't willing to go the lengths to do. It would be disingenuous, wouldn't it? If Jesus tells his followers to lay down their lives, this is what some kings do, this is what some rulers do, in fact, this is what some religious leaders do, you lay down your life for me. But that's not what Jesus did, right? He laid his life down first, that he came to us. And yet that's the same kind of love that we've been commissioned and commanded and equipped to do for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus actually did what he taught. He laid down his life. He died in our place. He endured the wrath of God that we deserve so that God's justice would be satisfied and his love could flow through, unhindered through Christ, to us, through us, toward another. Christ's love was painful at some time, wasn't it? Jesus loved selflessly, sacrificially, understandingly, forgivingly. We think about our lives, we think about trying to love this way. It is true that when you go to give this love to another, you may be rejected. Or you may be criticized or ridiculed. It's okay. We know that in time the disciples took joy for receiving punishment and abuse for the fact that they were trying to love as Jesus loved them. They counted it joy to do that. What's wrong with them? They were convinced. They were convinced that it was the best way to make the most of relationships. The best way to make the most of relationships is to love one another as Christ loved. And it is painful. What do you think it's like to go and confront a brother and sister who is in sin? And because you love them so much, you want to make them aware in case they're not aware. It takes courage to do that. It takes humility to do that because you need to check your own face first. You need to check your own life first. What do you think it's like to receive and have a brother or sister in Christ come to you and tell you about, a, about sin they see, like this admonishment or exhortment? Oh, it's rough, isn't it? 
but it's worth it. We're to love like him. And this love's going to be painful sometimes. Most likely not the same as when Christ laid his life down. But you'll experience pain. So we settle for lesser forms of love and appeasing and placating and saying things like, I don't need to talk to them about that hard thing because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go there. So we stay at friendships that talk about work and vacation and simply how the kids are doing, but no one yields a big thing. No one owns up and shares up a big thing. That's not love. Jesus' love is, is amazing when we consider that there is nothing we can do to lose it. We sang about it this morning. We sing about it weekly. It's a love that says this, there's nothing you can do to undo my choice for you. Incredible, isn't it? Do you have that amongst someone else that you love? For better, for worse, unless it's really bad, for richer, for poor, unless you're really poor, sickness and health, unless you're really sick, till tough circumstances do us part. Hmm. I want to be that kind of friend. I want to be that kind of neighbor. I want to be that kind of enemy. (laughs) The love that Jesus says we're supposed to have for the people that are easy to love, and most of Southbridge people are easy to love, is the same kind of love we're supposed to have for our enemy. That's what Christ did for us. He died for his enemies. It might be hard to conceive that because you think, Man, I'm a pretty good person. No. We need his love. Do you want to make the most of your relationships? Learn about God's love. And live out what you learn. It'll take a lifetime to do. It'll take forever to do. And we have forever to do it. For those that are in Christ. As John 15 tells us, we have the power and capability to love others as Jesus did, does, will. When we continually are connected to Christ, in your translation it might say like abide, remain, stay, grow in John chapter 15. That's the idea of connection to him. God's spirit then enables us to love like him without being connected to Christ through the power of God's spirit. We are unable and most likely unwilling then to love like him. That's why when someone says, I could never love so-and-so. No, you can because the spirit will always enable you to do what he commands. What you're saying is you're unwilling and I understand that. When we, get, when we get hurt from people, it's hard. The command remains. Jesus says when we do this, when we love like this, we'll bear much fruit, John 15 says. That's kingdom stuff. That's kingdom award, kingdom revelations in people. There's like this amazing supernatural thing that takes place, this fruit that is born out of true love. So to abide in Jesus means to continually trust him. It's not about being a good boy or a good girl and making sure you show up every Sunday. It's not, a, it's not about that. But trusting him and taking him at his word that his commands are best for you. So you, Jesus says, those that obey me love me. A lot of people say they love Jesus. And then we look at our lives and think, does my life show that I love Jesus? Because Jesus says in John 15, those that love me obey me. How's the obeying going? But the chief thing in obedience is this, trust. Trust in him. Another word is faith. Faith in him pressing into him, his character and commands, and then stepping in faith to imitate him in whatever your context is. How's that going? Are you thinking of someone right now that's hard for you? <laughs> Are you elbowing the person next to you that's hard for you? Or that you listen to this? In order for us to love like we should, we have to allow Christ's love to override our sin and our selfishness by faith. And it's going to take a lifetime. It's perpetual repentance to God. And then we trust in him and we look unto the best interests of others as God equips us to do so. 
So what will this love look like practically? Yeah, Jason, this stuff sounds nice. It sounds good for maybe an essay. You speak kind of weird, but it's okay. What does it look like practically in 2015 for us to love like this? Well, the scriptures don't leave us alone to guess. In fact, the people that heard this message from Christ with their own ears, the disciples, they passed it on to others. So they started loving this way, and it became a revolution. People started wanting to be a part of this. Then they'd equip others, and others were equipped. And so eventually in time, churches were planted. There's this one church that's not too different than ours that had a lot of problems. And the reason why they had problems is because there's people in it. So they had problems with how they do worship and problems with their performance and problems with people not using their gifts and sex problems within the church, all this stuff. They need to be commissioned and encouraged to know how to live life for the glory of God in relationship to one another. So what I want to do is I want to look at a passage that's very popular for weddings, but it's not written to a husband and wife. It includes them, but it's written to a church. And I'm almost embarrassed to go to it because I'm afraid that what will happen, and I'm taking this as codependency, I'm taking responsibility for that you might shut down. Here's the passage. You ready? 1 Corinthians 13. I know. This is the kind of passage that boyfriends in Christian schools give their girlfriends because they think they have the capacity to love like this. <laughs> Look at how much I love you. That's just a confession. I wish someone would have confronted me, but I would have told them, I love my girlfriend. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and this letter is a letter written to a church that struggles and has problems. Lots of problems. Last week, we talked about making the most of your gifts. And what's so cool how this letter flows is that in the chapter before 13, Paul's talking about how to use your gifts for the edification of the body, the encouragement of the body, the church, for the glory of God. And then he transitions talking about the motive of the use of those gifts. And it's great that last week we got to talk about this, and this week we're talking about love. Because Paul's basically saying, the author of Corinthians, saying, you can have all these gifts, but if you don't use them with the motive of love, you come off as annoying. That's what he says right here. You could have tongues of men of angels, and if you don't have love, you only are a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. So then he starts talking about expressions of yielding to another's best interest. When we go through this list, you think about you, and you ask the Holy Spirit, this is what it means to take in the Bible and actually have it affect our lives. You think about, hey, in 2015, I want to work on this one, but the Spirit's help. Ready? Here's expressions of yielding to another's best interest. Love, then. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. This is talking to the church. Not just someone that you really, really like, like your spouse. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. That's a forgiveness statement. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's an interesting statement because the next line is this. Love never fails. So when someone says the phrase, we were in love, but we fell out of love, but the Bible says love never fails, which one's a lie? Is the Bible a lie that sometimes love does fail? Or is the first one a lie that really didn't love each other? When you have a, you have a breakup with a friendship within your church, which should be a place of love, and we should be able to find a way, because of our commonality in Christ, our one hope, one faith, one Lord in Christ, to come together and figure it out together because of our great commitment and love. We just say, well, we just, we fell out of favor. With a little grace with each other. Is there something to work on? How about the first one? Love is patient. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Do you think Jesus was patient with his disciples? Do you think Jesus is patient with you? He's patient with us with our unbelief issues. That we, th- we get nervous that God doesn't know what he's doing and that he might need our help. He's crazy patient with us. This Old Testament says it this way. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. In long-suffering. Is there something to work on? This is what it looks like practically. This is practical instruction from an apostle to the church that needed help. And it's the same in 2015. We need help. 
Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we read about these series of mutuality commands to reveal God's love and how to make the most of relationships. The one another's, they're called. These commands translate then love into action. They, don't, they, lead, they do lead them to trust, harmony, unity. Some of them are um, encourage one another, admonish one another. That's not a popular one. Don't complain against one another. This is, like, this is the Bible. Confess your sins to one another. That's a hard one. Because we want to keep it at a level of how's work going. Good. It's like talking to middle schoolers about school. How's school going? Fine. <laughs> Give us something better. How's your teacher? Do you like him? Yeah. That's how we talk as adults with our friends. The reason why we can't confess or sin to another person is because we're not sure the Holy Spirit's big enough for them to receive us when we share a crazy thing. But you don't know this, that your friend might have the same thing you do or has and has overcome. You're missing out on grace. You're missing out on seeing grace personified through your friend because that's loving one another as Christ loved us. Thank you for telling me that. What are we going to do? Because there's always consequences to sin, but I'll go with you. Are we going to jail? I'll go with you. I'll visit you. James writes this, and James is a half-brother of Jesus, and he died by the sword. He didn't believe, and then he did believe. He believed so much and loved others so much that eventually he gave up his life for Christ. He died by the sword, tradition tells us. And he writes in James, he says to believers, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. What an awesome one another statement. Are we taking advantage of that command? It's to the confessor's advantage to confess. It's being church, not just attending something. Bear one another's burdens. Probably once a year I share with Southbridge this idea that I learned quickly when we moved to the South. We moved to the South in South Carolina in 2003, and I learned quickly that people were trained in the South not to burden people. I don't want to be a burden. The Bible says to share your burdens. So which one's right? Your tradition or God? Then how are we doing? Burdening is, sharing your burdens is the idea of sharing our load and saying what's going on and let me help and here's some resources and sharing benevolence and giving needs. It's to your advantage to share your burden with another. And it's to your advantage to come up under the load of one another and direct them to Christ that they might experience Christ's love through you. How's it going, church? A lot of it happens. There's a lot of amazing stuff, especially happening through our group life. Group life is our best care strategy. It's a way that a large church feels small. It's being known and knowing people. These are some of them. There's several. Some lists are 59 of them. Others have 100 of them. There's a lot of repetition. The most common one is love one another, love one another, love one another. It's a simple answer, isn't it? Living these out in love is a way that leads to making the most of relationships. These are practical ways but difficult and usually require humility to pull off. The last question is kind of a so what question we should ask. If we're good Bible students, we should ask why should I? Who cares? What's the point? And Christ tells us, look at verse 35 again, John 13, 35. He tells us, By this, so when you do this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Why should we love one another as Christ did? Number one, because Jesus said to. That's not enough for some of us. It's an awesome answer for your kids, though, still. I didn't believe in it, but it is, because I said so. So it's not just because he said so, but because of what he said. And what did he say? When you do this, everyone's going to know that you're followers of me. Everyone's going to know that you're into me. You might be accused of seeming like me. What an awesome accusation. 
Everyone will know that you, we are Jesus followers by how we love one another. Love is to serve then as the distinguishing characteristic of discipleship. Would you be accused of being too loving? I don't mean affectionate. And in turn, these loving relationships communicate to the world around us something about Jesus. The quality of relationships among Christians is an effective witness then for the gospel because it creates the kind of community into which other people want to be a part of. I saw this one time when helping a friend move. A whole bunch of us from church and when I helped a friend move from church, this person's new neighbors came over and said, who are all these people? It was just me and my wife when we moved. Getting into church. We move people and we get paid in pizza. Every time. People are inquiring, what's happening here? Why do you have these friends? Answer, oh, because of Jesus. John chapter 17, which is one of my favorite chapters, Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. This is just after the speech that we're looking at here, after this teaching, you're not speech. This teaching and this pleading and this talking. And he has some friends that he's asked to pray with them, but they've fallen asleep. They're just too sleepy. And he's praying, and he prays to God. He prays a little bit about himself as recorded in John chapter 17. Then he prays for the disciples here in this passage. Then he prays for you and me when he says, my prayer is not only for them, meaning the disciples, but for all who believe because of them. That's me and you if you're in Christ. That they would be one, Father, as you and me and I as them and you. So that, there's lots of so that's with Jesus, just like in our passage implied, that in that the world might believe, people might know your disciples. In John chapter 17, he says, so that the world might believe, Father, that you sent me, and that you love them, the world, even as you loved me. So let me explode your brain with this truth as it explodes mine. God loves Christ the same as he loves the world. Jesus said it, that, you, that they would see how much you love them even as you've loved me, Father. Incredible. Incredible. It should drive us to worship. Our love for one another will point others not to ourselves but to Jesus. And so by loving like this, we're redefining love for the world. It's very different than when I say, I love you versus I love ice cream. Or it should be different. I love you versus I love my show. I love you as Jesus loved me. Francis Schaeffer, theologian and author, writes, Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. The world wants to know. The world wants to believe. Have you heard this one? Do you remember this hymn growing up in church? They will know we are Christians by our love. That song was sung like a dirge, by the way. It was pretty depressing sounding. Isn't it true then that Christians do not always, in fact, do not often behave as their faith demands? So as we leave, you can think about how can you help this church? How can you help those around you, your own life, as loveless as it can be, become a loving community that Jesus called into being through his death and resurrection. One last thought and then we'll just enjoy some fellowship together. A confession. I taught this exact same text 3.3 years ago. I struggled to find a text. I was praying with God for about it for a few weeks and wasn't sure. I thought maybe Hebrews 1 about encouraging one another as the day approaches or or Colossians and I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is too simple. And so I wrestled with the Lord and said, so we'll go for it. And then after preparing, I realized I did teach this one before. 40.4 months ago. And I, am I any closer to imitating Christ than I was? Am I, am I being confused for Jesus? 1,232 days ago. 
29,000 hours ago, and we both had the same amount of time, actually. 1.77 million minutes ago, 106 billion seconds ago, I preached this text, and I think to myself, as convicted by the Spirit, Jason, there's room to grow. There's room to grow. Do I extend Christ's love more freely and accurately since that time? Our church is filled with loving people. I believe our membership is truly loving toward our our leadership, as clumsy as we can be, of which I'm a part. There's room to grow, huh? There's room to grow in receiving this kind of love, correction, admonition, exhortation, and giving it. Group life is a place where it can happen. And I'm going to encourage you to go sign up for some groups, look at those things, and I'm going to pray for us right now. Lord, for this day, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and grace and mercy toward us, extended to us in Christ. Lord, may your spirit transform us that we'd we'd become a people that are confused with loving like Christ, that are um, uh, called a people that are loving like Christ, that people think that we seem like Jesus, that people would know your love by how we live. God, I just pray in advance for the groups that will be forming and equipping groups and small groups, caring groups and engaged groups, God, that you would use them for your glory. We're not interested in adding programs for their own sake. We don't want to be busy doing church. We want to be church. So Lord, we trust in you for this. Thank you for this day. And we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.